When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm very honoured today to be joined by a very distinguished guest, Professor Avi Slame. I know very many of you have been very excited. I, I gave people a heads up um, that I'm talking to you today, Avi. So thank you so much for joining me. For those who don't know, very distinguished historian, specialist, of course, in the Middle East, Israel, Zionism. And in the current horror, um, one of the best pieces of work that I've certainly read was by you in Prospect magazine, and that went viral. Um, now, I mean, firstly, it's a huge honour to be joined by you, so thank you so much for joining us. I just want to start by talking about yourself, if, that, if that's okay, um, because you've got a, a very fascinating and relevant backstory, and I think we'll end up going full circle with this, actually, by the end. You're Jewish, and you were born um, in Iraq, so just wondering if you want to tell us just a bit about that history, because it's obviously extremely relevant. Um, I was born in Baghdad in 1945 to a Jewish family. Uh, and when I was five years old, my family moved to Israel. So I went to school uh, in Israel. And I recently wrote an autobiography, uh, which is called Three Worlds, Memoirs of an Arab Jew. Uh, so today, I describe myself as an Arab Jew. And this is a very controversial term in Israel. Israelis say that it's a contradiction in terms. It's um, an ontological impossibility. If you are a Jew, you cannot be an Arab. And if you're an Arab, you cannot be a Jew. Well, I beg to differ. And I can think of no better way of describing my initial identity as that of an Arab Jew. Um, uh, we were um, Arab Jews in Baghdad. We spoke Arabic at home. We spoke only Arabic at home. Our culture was Arab culture. Our, our customs were Arab uh, customs. My parents' music was a nice blend of Jewish and Arabic music. Uh, and the Iraqi, there was a Jewish community in every Arab state throughout the Arab world. Um, and the Jewish community in Iraq was the most prosperous, the most successful, the most uh, well-integrated community. And it contributed to um, um, nation building at every level. So the Jews were a very positive element in Arab society in the 1930s and 40s. Um, this all changed with the establishment of the State of Israel in 1948 and the, Arab, the defeat of the Arab armies uh, in Palestine. There was a backlash against the Jews, and it was uh, this backlash that uprooted my family and myself. But I still like to 
describe myself as an Arab Jew, controversial as it is, because I'm proud of being Jewish, um, and I'm equally proud of being an Arab. I'm proud of my Arab heritage, and I don't see any contradiction between the two. Um, and my memoirs have aroused a lot of interest in the Arab world, because uh, anyone who was born after 1948 has no idea that once upon a time, there was a very extensive Jewish community that lived in the Arab world, and for the most part lived in harmony with coexistence. Um, and uh, for my family and myself, Muslim Jewish coexistence was not an ideal, was not an abstract idea, it was our everyday reality. And it is this world that has been, this old world, very happy world, was swept away in the 20th century by the cold, war, uh, cold winds of nationalism. And it's that world that I um, wanted to recreate, um, reanimate in my memoirs. And as you suggested, uh, hopefully we'll end up at, um, in a full circle and co come back to this idea of Jewish um, Muslim coexistence, possibly in one democratic state in Israel, Palestine. I, I think that is how we will go full circle. I should also explain, by the way, I mean, I, I spoke before, I'm in Paris, there's building work currently going on. So I'm silencing myself, which will be to the delight of much of my audience. But we will go full circle with, with what you just said by the end. Now, I'm just interested in your thoughts about the evolution of Zionism. And I'm interested in this because the left, and this is perhaps something that the left could be self-critical about, but it's a history people don't realise. The, the lefties have quite a different relationship with Zionism. And indeed, when the when Israel was founded, much of the left supported that. Um, I mean, I'm not sure if we conflate the Soviet Union with the left, but the Soviet Union at the time was the first state to jaw back the foundation of Israel. People might remember 1985, Neil Kinnock's famous speech when he attacked Militant, and Eric Heffer walked off the stage, um, very much a left-wing stalwart, also a Zionist. Tony Benn used to denounce the PLO. It's quite interesting that history is often not discussed. And I'm just wondering what you thought about that, how Zionism was originally seen, but whether the, what we see now is actually the logical endpoint and evolution um, of Zionism. It used to have these socialist pretenses, but it was always based on that mass displacement of the Palestinians, the Nakba, which at the time, much of the left didn't even talk about. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts about how Zionism was originally seen and whether its reality was airbrushed and whether you see it, it's developed now as its inevitable endpoint. Uh, uh, Zionism was a liberal ideology uh, and based on universal values like freedom, independence, justice, and um, equality. And in the 1950s, Israel was indeed a, a socialist icon. Uh, and uh, because it was democratic, because it was socialist, because it was progressive, it received uh, a huge amount of international sympathy and support. But Israel has evolved a long way from that um, early period. Um, 
and uh, we'll probably come back to that later. Um, what happened in reality is that Israel mistreated the Palestinians. Israel embarked on the systematic takeover of Palestine and a huge gap developed between the Zionist rhetoric, the Zionist ideal, and the reality of Israel's treatment of the Palestinians on the ground. And um, uh, the Zionist founding fathers filled this gap uh, with humbug and hypocrisy. Um, now, Noam Chomsky once said that settler Zionism is the most extreme and vicious form of imperialism. The Palestinians have had the unique misfortune of being at the receiving end of both Zionist settler colonialism on the one hand uh, and Western imperialism on the other hand. First, during the British mandate when it was Britain, and since 1948, it's been American imperialism that has supported the Zionist uh, project. So um, uh, Zionism was increasing, or rather the state of Israel was increasingly seen um, as uh, an imperialist power. Uh, allied to America, and there is no better demonstration of that perception, critical perception of Israel, than uh, the tragedy, tragedy that is unfolding in the Gaza Strip today, not just with American complicity, but with American active support for the Israeli um, massacres. I was very struck by something which the brilliant um, Canadian writer, Naomi Klein, he's had a big impact on myself and the whole, I'd say, generation of progressive writers and thinkers. Um, she's, of course, Jewish herself, and she, she wrote about how the West founded Israel as a form of reparations uh, for the crimes committed against the Jewish people. And obviously, within living memory, the, the Holocaust, the attempt to exterminate the entire Jewish population, two-thirds of whom were killed in Europe in a very short space of time. But she said that involved granting a form of exceptionalism, um, whereby, for example, the forms of colonialism that the West was at that time increasingly being forced uh, to abandon um, because of the struggle of the peoples who'd be colonized, but Israel almost was given an opt-out out of that and a form of exceptionalism. There's something actually Raz Sigal, the Israeli-American um, scholar of genocide and Holocaust I've, I've interviewed, I mean, he talks about this, how there's a form of exceptionalism granted in international law to Israel as a consequence. And I was just wondering what you thought about that kind of analysis, I suppose. Uh, um, uh, the Holocaust was a uniquely evil uh, and catastrophic event, um, and it had consequences. One of the consequences was to... Um, uh, make an unassailable case for an independent Jewish state. Um, and in the aftermath of the Second World War, there was a um, Western feeling 
of guilt towards the Jewish people um, and um, a feeling that um, um, they had to be compensated um, for the Holocaust, uh, something really major, something titanic had to be done for the Jews in the aftermath of this catastrophe. And that thing was an independent Jewish state. This explains why the UN um, voted for the partition of Palestine in 1947, the partition of mandatory Palestine into two states, one Arab, one Jewish. This was very unfair to the Arabs because the Jews were a minority and then the, and they were allocated 55% of mandatory Palestine. So the Arabs rejected um, partition and uh, went to war. Um, and then in the course of the war, Israel expanded its borders to 78% of mandatory uh, Palestine. So the Holocaust explains a great deal about why Israel came into existence in the first place and the rather um, permissive attitude towards Israel and its use of force after it was um, established. But I um, cannot agree that Israel was granted an exceptional status under international law, because international law is universal. The same rules apply to everybody, and they apply to Israel uh, as well. Uh, and it's because of Israel's behavior, because of its use of military force, because of its violations of international law, because of the uh, occupation that it alienated uh, world opinion. And today, I think that more and more people no longer give Israel this immunity, this exceptional status, uh, because the Holocaust, the Jews were the victims of the Holocaust. Whereas today in Gaza, it's Israel, which is the, per the, per the perpetrator of a genocide of Palestinians. So things have changed very radically uh, and now Israel receives much less immunity uh, in public opinion uh, because of the Holocaust. I'm just interested in, as a historian, obviously, of this, of, of, of Israel, of Zionism, the Middle East, um, the, the attempt to start the clock on the 7th of October. And obviously 7th of October is a huge trauma. It was a huge trauma for people, obviously, in Israel and, and beyond. And it included war crimes, severe war crimes, which were committed against innocent Israeli civilians, which no one should be any doubt about. Um, what what there's been is obviously often this, all the way through an attempt to say, this is when this war began, essentially. And everything else, apartheid, occupation, mass displacement of the Palestinians is, from 1948 onwards, before arguably. I'm just wondering what your thoughts about that and why it's important to have a historical context, and both for 7th of October, but also to explain everything that's happened since. 
uh, it's impossible to make any sense of what is happening today without understanding the historical context of the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict. Uh, the Hamas attack on Israel on the 7th of October was utterly horrific um, and cannot be justified because it involved the killing of 1,200 Israelis, mostly uh, civilians and atrocities were committed. So it was a horrific event which has been denounced and must be de denounced. Uh, but as the Secretary General of the United Nations said at the time, this attack didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in the context of 56 years of suffocating Israeli occupation. And he went on to say uh, that the context uh, doesn't justify the attack, but it helps to explain it. And the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Mr. Erdan, immediately launched a vicious personal attack on the Secretary General of the United Nations he accused him falsely of anti-Semitism. He said nothing that was anti-Semitic. Uh, uh, he called for his resignation. He um, uh, uh, appealed to members of the United Nations to stop funding the organization. Uh, and he even said that the Secretary General of the UN is a threat to world peace. Um, now, there is nothing new about Israeli um, hostility towards the UN, but the contrast between the civility, the decency, the humanity of the Secretary General and the crudeness and the crassness of um, uh, the Israeli representative is very striking. Uh, so uh, we, I would follow uh, and I have followed in my writing the example of the Secretary uh, General of the UN in trying to put the war in Gaza in a historical context. And the brief historical context, the long historical context would take us back to the Balfour Declaration of 1917. But I would like to start uh, with uh, the Israeli occupation of Gaza in 1967. Um, and um, the fact that the Palestinians for 56 years have been living under occupation. The most prolonged and brutal military occupation of modern times. So this is the everyday reality for Palestinians on the West Bank and Gaza a brutal military occupation, arbitrary occupation that denies them independence, denies them human rights, denies them all of the basic rights that every people is um, uh, entitled to. Um, and um, what Israel experienced on the 7th of October is a very, very extreme and dramatic and painful uh, attack, but it is uh, has to be seen against the background of 
long-standing Palestinian uh, suffering. And there is one other point about the context for the Hamas attack. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's line to the Israeli public is that um, he is the guarantor of Israeli security uh, and that the Palestinians are finished. The Palestinians are defeated. Israel has a free hand to do whatever it likes on the West Bank. And as for Gaza, um, it's contained um, within the prison of Gaza. Gaza is the largest open air prison in the world. And part of his policy was to allow Hamas to govern Gaza. But Gaza was contained. There was an Israeli blockade of Gaza, which has been in force um, for 16 years. And a blockade is a form of collective punishment which is prescribed by international law. After the Hamas attack on Israel, Israel um, uh, extended the blockade that had um, inflicted so much suffering on the Palestinians in Gaza. And now they cut off water, food, medical supplies, and, and fuel. So they use starvation as a weapon of war. This is a new level of, um, of uh, brutality, of cruelty, even of say, uh, uh, say, sadism. So um, um, uh, that is the background to the Hamas attack, because the message that they sent was, we are not defeated, we are not finished. Um, and Hamas, it's true that the Palestinian Authority doesn't represent any uh, resistance. Indeed, the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah has become the a subcontractor for Israeli security. That's why it doesn't enjoy legitimacy. And Hamas said, we are still here. We cannot be ignored. And we continue to lead the national struggle against um, the occupation. And there was one other reason for the timing of the Hamas attack. And that is that um, America uh, persuaded a number of Arab countries, four Arab countries, to sign uh, the Abraham Accord with Accords with Israel. Uh, and America put very strong pressure on Saudi Arabia to join the circle of the Abraham Accords. And there was a deal that was on the table. It would have taken a few more weeks and uh, Saudi Arabia would have joined. Um, um, the circle of Arab states who are at peace with Israel. And Hamas wanted to prevent that. Um, and uh, indeed, at, at the very least, Saudi Arabia has suspended the, the attempt to sign a peace agreement uh, with Israel. The Abraham Accords represent a stab in the back to the Palestinians because they give Netanyahu what he wants. Netanyahu's line is that Israel uh, can make peace with the Arab states without making any concessions to the Palestinians. Uh, and he seemed to be vindicated, but now 
as a result of the Hamas attack, it is clear that the Arab world cannot continue to ignore the Palestinians and that the Palestinians are going to continue to put up resistance to the occupation. I'm interested in how you've termed Israel's onslaught against Gaza state terrorism, given, I mean, terrorism has been used by Western states basically to claim their violence is legitimate and moral and they're in contrast to their opponents. It's a very politicized term, terrorism. It is interesting, actually, in the context of the so-called Daher doctrine developed in the 2006 Lebanon war, um, in which essentially Israeli strategy is to, you, you inflict uh, terrible damage on civilian populations and um, with terrible civilian uh, fatalities in order in, in the context of Lebanon to get them to put pressure on Hezbollah in, and in uh, in Gaza to put pressure on Hamas and uh, a, a very a brilliant Israeli and Palestinian publication called 972 magazine plus 972 magazine actually used uh, source they spoke to sources of military intelligence to kind of confirm this was actually happening. But I'm just interested in that, your, your view on state terrorism, Israel, given obviously the claim, the official claim of Israel is that this is self-defense, that they're waging self-defense to shut down terrorism. So just what's your thoughts on how terrorism is used and why we should talk about this as state terrorism? Terrorism is the use of military force against civilians for a political purpose. Um, and uh, a Hamas attack on Israeli civilians is a form of terrorism. And an Israeli attack on Palestinian civilians in Gaza for political purposes is a form, in my book, is a form of state terrorism. Now, Israel claims that it has the right to self-defense and all its Western uh, allies, like Biden, like um, Rishi Sunak, like um, um, uh, Sir Keir Starmer, repeat parrot fashion that Israel has the right to uh, defend itself. But it doesn't under international law because although Israel uh, uh, withdrew unilaterally from Gaza in 2005, it is still the occupying power because it controls access by land, sea, and air to Gaza. So Israel is the occupying power, and you have the right to self-defense if the attack comes from another state or if the attack comes... you, you, you uh, uh, but you don't have the right to self-defense if the attack comes from an area under occupation. To put it more simply, Israel doesn't have the right to self-defense against the people that it occupies. And therefore, I call the Israeli attacks on Gaza. Um, this is, by my count, this is the sixth Israeli military offensive in Gaza. And all of them are acts of state terrorism in as much as they are directed not against Hamas, but against the people of Gaza as a whole. And uh, if I may, I'd like to refer to the first Israeli attack on Gaza, uh, Operation Cast Lead, in late um, December 
2008 and early uh, January 2009. That was Operation Cast Lead. There is the Goldstone report about that operation, and uh, it's a very impressive report, very detailed uh, um, account of 33 Israeli episodes and many Israeli war crimes. And the conclusion is that the Israeli attack on Gaza was in a broader sense an attack on the people of Gaza, and its aim was to, um, to punish, humiliate, and terrorize the people of Gaza. And this uh, current offensive in Gaza is also intended to terrorize, to punish and to terrorize the people of, of Gaza. Um, uh, and the strongest argument is the one that you mentioned, the Dahia doctrine. This is a doctrine that was developed by the IDF uh, during the second war uh, in Lebanon. And what it says is that Israel is entitled to inflict very, very severe damage and suffering on civilians for the purpose of den denying the resources, denying the support to, um, um, in, in that, in, that, uh, in uh, Lebanon it was Hezbollah, uh, in uh, Gaza it's Hamas. So under the Dahia uh, doctrine, Israel is um, entitled to cause massive um, carnage and damage to uh, civilian infrastructure and buildings uh, in order to turn the population uh, against Hamas. But this war has been counterproductive and self-defeating because the Israeli atrocities um, and inhuman uh, behavior towards the civilians in Gaza has turned the people of Gaza not against Hamas, but against Israel. And public opinion shows that if there was a Palestinian election today, um, Fatah will receive 16% and Hamas would receive 60%. So Israel has failed in its aim of using military force against civilians in order to turn them against uh, Hamas. I mean, in, ter in terms of Hamas, and, you know, I think some people find this challenging. They would have found it challenging before the 7th of October attacks, and they certainly would find it more challenging now, controversial to discuss this. But it's about the relationship between, or, or the approach towards Hamas, I suppose, and um, when Hamas won the elections in 2006, which they won partly because, well, in large part because of huge disillusionment with Fatah, which had previously dominated, who were widely perceived as corrupt and essentially had become a, a comp, um, appendages of the Israeli occupation. That's how many Palestinians in the West Bank um, came to see Fatah. So Hamas kind of came to power partly, you know, because people were fed up with Fatah, basically. But that caused then a siege of Gaza, which is the longest such siege in, in modern times. But actually, your view is actually there could have been a different approach. And, and the reason, you know, people go back to the charter of Hamas and say, well, look, Hamas just want to wipe out Israel and so on. 
Um, but actually, they're more complicated and fluid than that, aren't they? Um, in the way that they've been portrayed. And actually, you know, we're going to build a coalition here. Uh, Tony Blair, of all people, not someone I normally quote um, uh, on the Middle East, certainly. Um, but he actually, back in 2017, he said it, it was wrong for the West to have boycotted um, Hamas in the aftermath of their win. And there should have been a different approach. It was actually... You know, if even Tony Blair can say it, then then why can't we? But I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think people will find this challenging, but I think it's a very interesting thing to talk about. Uh, Owen, oh, I'm so glad that you brought up the Palestinian elections of two, January 2006, because most people um, have never heard of it, uh, and it's it's uh, it's not never mentioned in the current discourse about Gaza. So the simple fact is that in January 2006, there was an all-Palestine um, elections, and Hamas won an absolute majority, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank as well, an absolute majority in what was generally recognized and, uh, as a fair and free uh, election. And Hamas went on to form a government, and it was a moderate government, despite the charter. Once Hamas was in power, it had adopted the parliamentary road to power, um, and it won power legitimately. Once it was in power, it moderated its program, uh, and it called for um, uh, negotiations with Israel on a long-term truce, could be 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, and Israel refused to negotiate. And um, the United States uh, and European Union and Britain and Prime Minister Tony Blair, to their eternal shame, backed Israel in refusing to recognize the democratically elected government, and they resorted to economic warfare to undermine um, the Hamas government. And worse was to come as the Palestine papers, uh, a cache of 1,600 documents that were leaked to Al Jazeera revealed there was a plot against Hamas. And uh, a secret committee was set up. It was called the Gaza Committee. And on it were represented Fatah, Israel, Britain, uh, America, and, um, and Egyptian intelligence. And the aim uh, was to isolate, weaken Hamas, uh, and um, Israel and America armed uh, Fatah and encouraged Fatah to launch uh, to mount um, a coup d'etat in order to capture power and drive Hamas out of power. And Hamas preempted the coup against it um, uh, by seizing power in, in Gaza. Now, the attitude of the Western powers is very revealing during this critical period. They say that... Um, they support democracy and they promote democracy. Here was an example of Arab democracy, a shining example 
of Arab de democracy. It was an incredible achievement for the Palestinians to have democracy under the conditions of military uh, occupation. Um, but the Western powers in Israel uh, said they, the people had spoken, but the people had voted for the wrong bunch of politicians and therefore they don't recognize them. This reminds me of something that Bertrand Brecht said after the workers' uprising in East Germany in 1953. Uh, uh, if the government doesn't like the people, the government should dissolve the people and elect another. It's one of my favorite uh, quotes, which I often refer to. Um, uh, now, I mean, in terms of, I mean, it's interesting at the moment, I've been talking a lot at the moment about South Africa's case against Israel, um, accusing Israel of genocide, taking Israel to the International Court of Justice. Um, it's an, it's a, one of the most chilling documents I've ever read in my entire life, a very thorough, loyally piece. One of the things it, it looks at acts, conduct and it also looks at language um, and it is striking i mean again i keep mentioning razi gal the um israeli american prof um, associate professor of holocaust and genocide studies but he said it's very rare for genocidal intent regardless of what people think about conduct but genocidal intent to be so explicitly spoken on so many multiple occasions and since that document came out there have been so many other examples of genocidal incitement which is illegal under the 1948 genocide convention um, a state is duty-bound to prosecute those who use public platforms to incite genocide. But I'm just interested in what you think about that. Is, you know, is that kind of, does this just basically kind of, this is the inevitable consequence of any form of settler colonialism. You get a colonizer, it takes the land of a people who don't want their land taken off them. You get forms of violence, which then are met with terrible repression, which then feeds more violence in a very asymmetric way. Um, and you get this, cycle where eventually the occupied settler state essentially just adopts an increasingly genocidal posture. I don't know, what are your thoughts about that? You know, has this emerged innately from Zionism or, or is this, you know, what could, could a different outcome have been achieved? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. <clears throat> Settler co uh, colonialism has its own dynamic. Um, it's not 
like any other form of colonialism where there is a metropole, uh, people from that country go and occupy and live in another country and they have a home to go back to. Settler colonialism uh, is different uh, and Zionism was a settler colonial movement from the beginning. Um, and the logic of settler colonialism, since there is another people on the land, is to eliminate that people. The rhetoric was very different. The rhetoric was developing Palestine for the benefit of both peoples. But the reality was that it was a Jewish exclusive settler colonial movement which after 1917 embarked on the systematic takeover of Palestine. So you either carry out the ethnic cleansing of uh, Palestine, um, and this is what Israel has been doing systematically. Uh, and in 1948, there was the first Nakba, three quarters of a million Palestinians became refugees. Um, uh, and now we are on the verge of uh, a second Nakba. And what is utterly um, horrific is the genocidal rhetoric that we hear in Israel. And it's increasing all the time. And it's not one or two people and it's not marginal people, it's from the president down. The president of Israel said, there are no innocent people in Gaza. Well, Israel has just massacred over 22,000 people. Two thirds of them are women and children. Um, uh, and, um, and, and there have been so many other genocidal, explicit genocidal statement. Uh, one rabbi talked about dropping an atomic bomb on Gaza as an option. Uh, and there is a majority in Israeli public opinion for an expulsion of all the people in Gaza, all 2.3 um, million people. And this is not just loose talk. Uh, if there is a plan that was uh, of the Israeli Ministry of Intelligence dated 13 of October, which favors uh, the expulsion of um, uh, the population of Gaza to northern Sinai against Egyptian opposition. Egypt is opposed to ethnic cleansing. Jordan is opposed to ethnic cleansing. But the direction of Israeli policy seems to be pointing to, uh, towards ethnic cleansing because the, uh, the civilians in Gaza were pushed from the north to the south and they are now they are concentrated in an ever narrower area near the border with uh, Gaza. And the uh, Minister of Finance, Zvetrael Smotrich, has said that openly that this Palestinian, the population of Gaza should be reduced from 2.3 million to maybe 100 or 200,000. Uh, so uh, 
I don't think ever in history there's been so much evidence of rhetorical support uh, for genocide, which shows a definite intention to um, commit um, genocide. Uh, and what is very worrying in all this is the demonizing of the Palestinian people increasingly. And, and the distinction is not made between Hamas uh, and the Palestinian people uh, in general. Uh, more and more Israeli ministers are referring to the Palestinians uh, as Nazis. And this is what happened in Nazi Germany. First came the demonization of the Jews, and then came the Holocaust. And I'm extremely worried that this dehumanization of the Palestinian people as a whole is paving the way to ethnic cleansing and uh, in more extreme terms to, um, um, to, 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 uh, to genocide. Just before we go full circle, we go. We talk about what happens next and and, and prospects for, well, <laughs> something which emerges from this horror, which can provide the only solution, which is a lasting peace, which offers security and happiness to Jews, Palestinians on the basis of a shared land. But before I just ask you, we talk about that. And one of the bleakest things, when I look at the polling in Israel um, of the Israeli Jewish population, when most think not enough firepower has been used, a large majority support the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. One of the reasons I find that so bleak, and it's very important to say millions of Jewish people don't live in Israel. I mean, if we look in the US, the Jewish population is more progressive than the average American, and a whole generation of younger Jews are actually at the forefront of the, of the, of the solidarity movement with Palestine at the moment. I think that's something which should worry and disturb Israel very much, uh, younger Jews turning away from Israel in the United States and the US obviously is so instrumental to allowing Israel to continue to behave as it does. But the reason I just find it so bleak looking at that is the left as we understand it would not exist without Jewish people. And, and that's one of the reasons actually, particularly in the 20th century, early 20th century, anti-Semites partly used the fact that Jews were always overrepresented in the left and in movements for emancipation, liberation, social justice, to hate Jewish people even more. I mean, the Nazis obviously spoke about an international Bolshevik uh, conspiracy. The German left, obviously, again, Jews were overrepresented. And I'm just interested in terms of the, that form of humanism, Jewish humanism and the left are so intertwined. And in a way, Israel's had to wage war against it, hasn't it? And one of the reasons people like yourself often get the wrath of apologist for Israel, as a Jewish person who speaks out against what Israel is doing, is you're a reminder of that tradition, which in a sense Israel has sought to, to marginalise. I'm just wondering what your thoughts about that are. I'm not a practising Jew, but as I said earlier, I'm proud of being Jewish. And as I understand it, the three principal pillars of Judaism are truth, justice and peace. And I look at um, the present government in Israel, at Netanyahu uh, himself, and he doesn't represent any of these values. 
Uh, he's a corrupt um, and mendacious politician who stands trial on serious charges of corruption. And one of the reasons that he's fighting this war and a long war, as he says, in the way that he does, is because once the fighting stops, the countdown will start for uh, the end of his premiership. And if he's indicted, he's likely to end up in prison. So this is the kind of person who leads Israel today. And he personifies the ugliest, the most brutal, the most uh, racist, um, the most xenophobic aspects of the worst kind of Zionism. But uh, he's one person. Then his coalition partners, one coalition partner is um, um, Itamar Ben-Gvir, who is the Minister of International, Internal Security, and he um, is the leader of uh, a party called Jewish Power. The name itself is a fascist, and he himself is an outright uh, fascist who, uh, whose hero was Rabbi Kahane, um, uh, who, whose party had been outlawed. And another hero of Ben Gvir was Baruch Goldstein, who had committed a massacre of 28 Palestinian worshippers in the uh, mosque in Hebron. Um, uh, and um, there is Bezalel Smotrich, uh, who is um, a declared um, homophobe uh, and uh, an extreme Jewish supremacist. And those two are calling for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, not just from Gaza, but from the West Bank uh, as well. So you have an Israeli government, which is the most um, uh, right-wing and racist government in Israel's history, the most pro-settler, uh, and also the most Jewish uh, supremacist um, uh, government. So Zionism has evolved over the years, and it had a liberal phase, it had a socialist phase in the 1950s that I mentioned earlier. But today it has moved to the extreme right and it's a really reactionary, discriminatory, racist, expansionist um, uh, form of uh, Zionism. This is what Israel is today. And that is why um, um, more and more young people in particular have turned against Israel. And as you said, in America, it's not just younger Jews, but the whole community uh, has shifted uh, its attitude towards Israel. Uh, and the, so what we have is a disconnect in the West between the governments, the European governments, British government, American government, the governments that are remain almost blindly and uncritically uh, pro-Israeli, 
and the public, which is increasingly pro-Palestinians and increasingly um, uh, critical of Israel. Uh, so we have this disconnect, and one reason that I have for optimism, a very limited reason, is that public opinion has shifted very dramatically in the last three months uh, because of the Israeli actions uh, in Gaza. And in the long term, uh, for Western foreign policy is bound to catch up with public opinion. I mean, that I certainly think is something which is hopeful and something which Israel should be very worried about because, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think a whole generation, huge numbers of people, not just younger people, you're quite right, are being very politicised by what, what, what they're seeing. And, and I think the dam will eventually break there. But in terms of the future prospects, because as I've said, there's only one lasting piece here. And that's where this land is shared by, by Jews, by Palestinians of Muslim, predominantly, but also Christian and, and other religions, and those of no religion. But, I mean, it seems so utopian, this idea of a single democratic state, which I'm fascinated in. I mean, it, automatically, that's what appeals to people like myself. A single democratic state where all have equal rights. Because we see, you know, Gaza may be left inhospitable. It's population driven out. What survives of it? In the West Bank, we're seeing this huge level of just state terror again against the Palestinian population, the illegal settlements in any case, which make it a viable Palestinian state impossible. And, you know, it's been put to me that, you know, even if you've got an Israeli state which tries to dismantle those settlements, you basically get civil war in Israel. That would be essentially what would happen. Um, and also, there's just too much fury and anger now. So many Palestinians have seen what Israel have done and is doing. And on the, on the other side, you get many Israeli Jews will say, well, well, you know, they'll know after what they've done that they risk terrible, terrible vengeance. And they've seen 7th of October, so it's not exactly a, an abstraction. So then how could there ever be the democratic, secular state where everyone has equal rights, which which would encapsulate, encapsulate you know, your, your background, your heritage shows what is possible. But could it ever be possible? And how do we get there? Um. There used to be a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and it's the two-state solution. Uh, and there's been a massive international consensus behind a two-state solution. Um, but it has become fashionable to say that a two-state solution is dead. Why is it dead? It's because Israel killed it with the settlements. Uh, if you want a two-state solution, uh, that means a Palestinian state with on the West Bank and Gaza with the capital city in East Jerusalem. That is 22% uh, of historic Palestine. It's not asking very much. Um, it's asking for an independent Palestinian state on a fifth of the homeland. And by signing up to the Oslo Accord in 1993, the PLO accepted the two-state solution, but it was not to be because Israel continued to expand settlements on the West Bank. 
and Israel built uh, the so-called security barrier uh, uh, on the West Bank. Uh, and Israel, by its own territorial expansion, has killed the two-state solution. I believe that the two-state solution was never born because no Israeli government since 1967 have offered a formula uh, for a two-state solution that is acceptable, that would be acceptable even to the most moderate Palestinian leader. And no American government has ever put any serious pressure on Israel to move towards a two-state solution. Uh, so today, there is no possibility of a two-state solution, and Israel rejects it utterly and totally. Um, uh, so what are the alternatives today? And the alternatives are more of the same, continuing Israeli occupation, which uh, by necessity would become more and more brutal and would involve more and more ethnic cleansing. Um, um, uh, and Israel is already an apartheid state, and this would get, uh, carry apartheid to a new and more uh, brutal form. Uh, that's one alternative. Uh, uh, the status quo uh, plus the current Israeli agenda of destroying Hamas altogether and depopulating Gaza. That's one alternative. It's not acceptable to me. And the other alternative, uh, the one that I support, is uh, one state from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea with equal rights for all its citizens, regardless of religion and, um, and ethnicity. And I would add that the reality today is one state with Israel dominating the whole area. Uh, and this is not a democracy, it's an ethnocracy. It's a political system in which one ethnic group dominates the other. And the Israeli government, as I've already said, is the most overtly um, Jewish supremacist government in history. Uh, Israel is the only member state of the United Nations that I know which is officially racist. Why do I say this? Uh, I say it because the nation state law, the Jewish nation state law of July 2018 says that the Jews have a unique right to self-determination in the state of Israel. So that creates two categories of people, um, Jews uh, who are superior and Arabs who are inferior. That's racist. But the present government has gone even further than that racist law because the policy guidelines of the present government say Jews have an exclusive right to self-determination in the whole land of Israel, that includes the West Bank. So now 
this government denies any Palestinian national uh, national rights. Uh, and this brings me back to the solution that would be acceptable to me, and that is one democratic state uh, with equal rights. And this uh, would seem like a, a, an impossible dream. Maybe it is an impossible dream, but it's a noble vision. And it's a democratic vision. And moreover, um, because of the history of my family and of the Jews uh, of Iraq, when Muslim Jewish coexistence was the everyday reality, was the normal thing, that experience enables me to think of a better future for our region uh, than the one that we um, uh, see today. Um, uh, and um, I believe that more and more people would come to see it this way, to see one state with equal rights as the only viable uh, formula um, uh, and the only formula that would ensure security for Israel and safety for the Jews, because Israel was created as a haven for the Jew Jews anywhere, but today Israel is the least safe place for Jews in the world, and Israel demands 100% security for itself, which translates into 100% insecurity for the Palestinians, and that and, um, Israel would never have security unless there is Palestinian independence and equal rights. And my only um, solution, my only um, um, formula, the only formula I can think of that would provide peace and security um, for both people is the one state. And one final point is that Israel has been demonizing the Palestinians, calling them terrorists, not just Hamas, but the entire Palestinian people. I regard Palestinians as a normal people, as a people which, like any other people in the world, would like to live in peace, uh, in uh, freedom and dignity on its homeland. Israel has prevented them, the Palestinians, from achieving uh, this goal, and one state would enable the Palestinians to realize their basic rights. I think that's a wonderful place to end. I mean, it's been such an honor to have you, um, an honor for lots of different reasons, and um, obviously providing us with, with a crucial historical context, which, I mean, you know, our media, particularly the British media, ill serves the public. Um, because it often treats news events as though they, you know, thinks day one was last week. <laughs> um, but that, that's particularly pernicious when it comes to something, you know, like when we're talking about Israel and, and Palestine. But the other, the other reason it's such an honour to have you is that the, the most important two words for me uh, since this current round of horror has begun um, is, uh, is moral clarity. And, and you've shown, I think, moral clarity in 
in in spades throughout everything that you've said. Um, and I think moral clarity, as I've said, is a uh, is is crucial when we're talking about all this. So for those who've watched, please do share this video, like and subscribe. Um, but a very special thanks to you, uh, Professor. Thank you so much. Th thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure to be in conversation with you. It's a big honor. Thank you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.